We continue our series on Luke's Gospel, and we come this morning again to the sixth chapter, beginning at verse 12. Now, when we preach through books, we preach what comes next, and we come to a list of names this morning. And some of you might say, well, let's just read through them and move on, but we're not going to do that. And we will pray that the Lord will bless the exposition of his word to us this morning in these names of the apostles chosen by our Savior. Let's pray together. We humbly bow before you, Heavenly Father, and ask that because you are worthy of our praise, that even now we would understand that the preaching of the word and the hearing of the word is doxological, that we praise you in paying attention, in receiving your word, in taking it to heart, in living it out. And so, Father, we ask that the word expounded would be ultimately expounded not by this minister, but by Christ himself, who is the great preacher to his people, our prophet, our priest, and our king. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's Word and let's stand together as we read together Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning with verse 12. This is the Word of God. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor." The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, among the many reasons for turning to this passage and actually spending time with these names this morning, let me give you one powerful reason that we should spend time looking at this list of names before us. When Jesus was about to go to the cross, we read in John 17 that he prayed a prayer. We call that sometimes the high priestly prayer. And among the things he prayed were these. He said, of these men, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Before going to the cross, Jesus prayed for his apostles, and in praying for them, he prayed for you who today believe on his name. I would say that gives us good reason to look through this list together, don't you? Yes? But we begin with a setting of prayer. Verse 12. And these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Before choosing the twelve, he spent his night in prayer with his heavenly Father. So it's important to note that this came before the choice of the twelve, Jesus withdrew and spent the entire night in prayer, and this also is a time in which you will remember from what we saw last week, 
that opposition to Jesus is on the upswing, and Jesus meets that opposition with prayer and fellowship and communion with his heavenly Father. Now, Jesus is unique. He is the unique Son of God. The calling of the Twelve is a unique event in redemptive history, but the fact that Jesus is unique is quite the point to note in applying this to ourselves. If the sinless Son of God longed for communion with his Father, and if before making a serious human decision, because he was fully God and fully man, if before making a serious human decision he must spend much time in prayer, and as opposition is on the upswing and he meets it with prayer, then don't you think we also are in need of prayer? Don't you think this should be very serious and deep in the lives of believers in Christ? We are sinful but redeemed people of God. The way to the throne of grace has been opened to us by Jesus' blood. And the book of Hebrews tells us, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now let me give you an illustration from history, an illustration, a mighty illustration to my mind that is found in the life of Martin Luther. Jesus in this passage is facing opposition, greater opposition. The Protestant Reformation was a time of tremendous conflict between the true church and the false. It was a time of danger and the greatest stresses were upon the reformers, even the real possibility of death for believing in salvation by grace alone through the work of Christ alone. And Luther prayed mightily. He was in this like his master. And someone eavesdropped on Luther while he prayed and wrote this account of what he heard as Luther prayed. Here's what he heard. I cannot sufficiently admire Luther's resolve, his joy, his faith, and his hope in these times of desolation. He strengthens himself each day in these feelings through constant application to the Word of God. There's not a single day in which he does not reserve at least three hours for prayer taken from the time during the day that is most conducive to work. One day, I had the privilege of hearing Luther pray. What spirit, what faith in his words. He prays with all the reserve of a man who is before God, but with all of the confidence of a child speaking to his father. I know, Luther said, that you are our good God and our father. That is why I am persuaded that you will exterminate those who persecute your children. If you don't do it, the risk for you is as great as it is for us. This is your cause, and what we have done we were unable to leave undone. It is up to you, merciful Father, to protect us. As I listened from a distance to him praying these words in a clear voice, my heart burned with joy within me because I was hearing him speak to God with so much fervor and with complete liberty. Above all, he leaned so firmly on the promises of the Psalms that he seemed assured that nothing which he asked could fail to be accomplished. 
Adolf Minot said on his deathbed, Ah, if I were restored to life, I would like, with God's help and in spite of myself, to give prayer much more time than I have done and to lean on prayer much more than on work. And he urged the little band around his bed, seize the opportunity and redeem it, begin new habits of prayer. Well, what about it? Do you believe this? Uh, Does this speak to your heart and to your life? Uh, Will you begin new habits of prayer? And again, I say, if our Lord Jesus, God in the flesh, must pray, who are we not to pray? Who are we to play at prayer? And so I ask you, I urge us all, begin new habits of prayer. Who knows what blessing would be showered on this congregation if we but prayed? So don't let me leave it without pressing upon us, all of us, one more time. If Jesus, the Son of God, found it necessary to pray... Surely you and I as his people find it necessary to pray. Will you, will someone here today begin new habits of prayer? Will someone resolve in his heart this morning, I will begin new habits of prayer today? So, before selecting the twelve, Jesus prayed. Point two, selecting the twelve. This is in verses 14 through 16. Now, you'll notice in verse 13, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Jesus then descends from the mountain, calls his disciples, that is to say a large group of disciples undoubtedly, and from those he selects twelve that will be his apostles. Now, the number 12 is significant. There were 12 tribes of Israel. Why 12? Because Jesus is forming a new covenant people. Jesus is forming a new Israel. And they are called apostles. Now, what is the meaning of this? There is much to be said here, but simply to say... Apostles are those who are commissioned messengers. And what we have in this passage is the beginning of that apostolic band that will see all but Judas who will be replaced, who will see the risen Lord and spread the gospel throughout the world. This is the beginning of that foundational, unrepeatable office that is necessary to bring the Bible to a close, the canon to a close. Now, I'm not saying that the commission for this happens now that the fully developed apostolate is here in this passage. What I am saying is that it is here in incipient form. The Lord is moving these men toward the day when they will see him, the risen Lord, and then their apostleship will have universal foundational significance. God in his providence is providing already now in this passage for the apostolicity of the church, the apostolic foundation of the church. In other words, he is providing for you who are members of his church. He is doing that in this passage. Then thirdly, the twelve, who were they? The twelve, who were they? It will help if you have the Bible open before you. There are four lists of the twelve in the New Testament. 
One is in Matthew 10, another in Mark 3, another in Acts 1, and this one that we have here this morning. Peter is always first. Judas is always last in the Gospels list. The first four, though not always in this order, are always Peter, Andrew, James, and John. There are three groups of four, the leading position, and each group is held by Peter, Philip, and James, the son of Alphaeus. And we have a list here, and we will range somewhat beyond Luke to fill in the gaps so that it will be a help to us as we move on in Luke's gospel. First name, Simon, also called Peter. Now, Peter is given that name in Matthew 16, 18 by our Savior. He holds a leadership role among the twelve. Peter means rock, and that should encourage us because Peter was very unstable and grew instability over time. He betrayed our Lord, and yet the risen Lord used him greatly, and he wrote two epistles in the New Testament. So do you see, by giving Simon a new name, at this point in his life, our Lord was saying that he would make Peter a great man by grace. The next name is Andrew. Simply to say in passing, he was Peter's brother from Bethsaida, and he also was a fisherman called from the wharfs to trust in Christ and serve as an apostle. Next, we have James and John, sons of Zebedee, Galilean fishermen, cousins to our Lord Jesus Christ, Their mother, Salome, was Mary's sister. James will be martyred. We read of that martyrdom in Acts chapter 12, the first two verses. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This James will be martyred. John, the beloved disciple, lived a long life, and he wrote John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Now, when we come to the ninth chapter of Luke's gospel, we learn some interesting things about James and John in terms of their character at this stage in their development. When Jesus was in the area of Samaria, the Samaritans would not accept him because his face was facing Jerusalem. Remember, the Samaritans would have nothing to do with the temple in Jerusalem. And so James and John say, Lord, would you have us call down fire from heaven and consume them? And Jesus rebukes them. I've always wondered after that rebuke, did they repent at that time or did they at least think under their breaths, Can't we at least singe their hairs? (laughs) But this point of reference shows how far grace will bring these men and how far grace can bring you too. One of them dies a faithful martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ and the other one who wanted to call down fire from heaven becomes the apostle of love. Grace changes people. Then we have Philip, mentioned only on four occasions in John's gospel, actually. Some of the most marvelous words in the New Testament were said in answer to a question that Philip asked in John chapter 14. 
Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you that you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his, wor- his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And so he speaks to Philip, ultimately, of the triune nature of God and his uniqueness as the Son of God. Follow through your list, you see the next is Bartholomew. Now, Bartholomew means son of Ptolemy. Bar is son of Bartholomew, Bartholomew, son of Ptolemy. Almost certainly, this is the Nathaniel of John's gospel. It was often the case that men had more than one name. He said to Philip in John chapter 1, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. Jesus told this man without guile that he would see heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus said, I am the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder. The synoptics do not mention Nathaniel. John does not mention Bartholomew. Nathaniel is listed in John 21, however, among the seven disciples to whom Jesus showed himself after his resurrection. We come down to verse 15, and the first name in verse 15 is the disciple Matthew. Matthew is the Levi of Luke's gospel. We have already seen him in chapter 5. He was a tax collector. He was of that despised class of men who collected taxes and all that that meant in that day. He was called by Jesus, and you will remember that he held a feast because he wanted others also to know the Lord and tax collectors and others who were, who were not thought well of in society were in that feast. And the Pharisees grumble because of the guest list. And it is in that context, in chapter 5, verse 31, that Jesus reveals his mission. Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew's very presence in this list shows the wonder of God's grace and the freeness of his mercy. Because once again, this is not the kind of person that would have been expected by the Jews to have been called by God. Next in the list, we have Thomas. And Thomas means twin. He also went by the name Didymus. His place in the resurrection narrative in John is very significant. You'll remember at the end of John's gospel when Jesus shows himself to his disciples. Before that, they are there in a room. They are depressed. They are discouraged. And Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And Jesus came the resurrected Lord, and he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, confessing the full deity of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet believe. That is to say, believe on the testimony of the apostles, which is what you do this morning as believers in Christ. We then have James, son of Alphaeus, James the Less, he is sometimes called. This is not the Lord's brother, James. John 7, 5 makes it plain that Jesus' brothers would not believe for quite some time yet. We don't know much about this James, and there's a message here. We don't know much about him. Some people serve even in very responsible positions with very little notice from men. But he was called of God, and God sees. Are you content with that? Then we have Simon. Simon the Zealot. Now that meant that he was a political nationalist. He was a part of the party of the Zealots. He represents that party that was opposed to Rome in the extreme. This is the group that later, if you know something about the history, was wiped out at Masada. This led to the raising of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so we see a tax collector who served the state and a political radical who opposed the state, and both were called to a new allegiance in Jesus Christ. Maybe someone here is intensely loyal to some cause, but God will call you to a greater cause, the service of God's kingdom. We mention here, it is mentioned, Judas, son of James, which is probably, uh, probably Thaddeus. But then the last one in the list, verse 16, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Iscariot probably was his family name, and he's called a traitor. This is the one, you will remember, that kissed Jesus and betrayed him in the garden. This is the man, the Gospels tell us, that Satan entered. Judas shows us that a person may be near Jesus, that a person may name Jesus' name, and yet be a hypocrite. He had no capacity for understanding the beautiful thing that Mary of Bethany did when she anointed Jesus in John chapter 12. And John 12, 6 tells us that he was a thief who dipped into the treasury of the apostles. And when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, Judas responded, surely not I. Rabbi, he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He betrayed him with a kiss. He took his own life. And it was easier for Judas to betray Jesus than to confess his name. Because betrayal was his heart. And Jesus was not his heart. Judas reminds us that the church in its visible form, is composed of wheat and tares until Jesus comes again. Judas was fully responsible for his own sin, and yet what Judas did was nonetheless decreed by God. God's sovereignty and human responsibility come together any time we hear or think of the name Judas Iscariot. 
Matthew 26, 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. In Matthew 27, 9 and 10, this is referencing Judas' suicide and the Jews' purchase of the field with the money, that the blood money that Judas returned. Matthew 27 says, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for a potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Judas, fully responsible for his own sin and betrayal, God sovereign in it all. Now this is revealed so that we may know that even the sin of man for which man is fully responsible is nonetheless under the sovereignty of God for the glory of God's Son and the good of you, his people. Do not let it disturb you, rather let it encourage you. No matter what comes in your life, you do not live in a chance universe. Now last evening, I was reading a Reformed theologian. He calls himself called himself. He's no longer living. He knows better now um, what I'm about to tell you. But he called himself a Reformed theologian. He declined over the years. Once he was a great Reformed theologian, his doctrine declined over the years. Toward the end of his life, one of the things upon which he wrote was the providence of God. And he evacuates the providence of God, of its biblical content. He will not have a God who is the God of the decree. He will not have a God who is sovereign even over the sin of men. He still calls himself or called himself a reformed theologian. If he was reformed, the moon is made of Swiss cheese. I will not cease by God's grace to preach to you the twin realities that God is the God who foreordains whatsoever comes to pass in such a way that sinners are still fully and completely responsible for what they do. Whether we can grasp it, whether we can understand it, is not the point. This is what the Bible says. And to fail to preach these truths would be a failure to preach the whole counsel of God, and it would be to rob you, people of God, from the comfort that you need in your life, in the knowledge that nothing comes into your life by chance. Let me remind you of what the Heidelberg Catechism says, which I love to read to you and read to myself devotionally. What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? Answer, we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, 
and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. And that we learn from the life of Judas Iscariot and many other times in the scriptures. Well, fourthly, let me remind you of themes that we need to take with us as we have surveyed these names this morning. We could have skipped them. We could have said they're here, read them, and gone on. But I think there's much to learn. First of all, to remind you, we began with a call to prayer. Yes, the prayer life of Jesus is unique as he is unique. Nonetheless, it is certainly true that if our Savior in his earthly ministry did thrive on prayer and faced opposition by prayer and before making a major decision prayed, how much more is this your need and mine as well? Secondly, Jesus here forms the new covenant community. Here is the church in her new incipient form. This develops into the church empowered to witness after the resurrection through the Spirit of God at Pentecost. And let me stress what the Bible does. The New Testament teaches that God's people are a part of the church, the body of Christ. Yes, universally, but also in local expressions of the church. And it is totally wrong to think that we may be disciples of Jesus and disregard the church that he formed and died to save. And we have this encouragement. Here we have a little band of 12. And sometimes that continues in the history of the church, just a little band of followers. But as the Belgic Confession says most encouragingly, this holy church is preserved and supported by God against the rage of the whole world though she sometimes for a while appears very small and in the eyes of men to be reduced to nothing, as during the perilous reign of Ahab, the Lord reserved unto him 7,000 men who had not bowed their knees to Baal. Something else we take from this is the apostolicity of the church. There are four attributes of the church, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Apostolicity means that we are built upon the foundation of the truths that the apostles taught and that we have in the New Testament. And we are faithful to apostolic ministry when we take heed to what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Are you listening? Are you listening? Thou, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. The church is built upon the deposit of truth passed down to us by apostolic ministry, and I will remind this church it only takes one generation for a church to lose a commitment to that apostolic foundation. I charge you, do not let that happen. And then another thing to take with us is simply the wonder of God's grace. God saves and uses all kinds of people from all walks of life. 
fishermen, tax collectors, political revolutionaries, people in the background and skeptics, and even you and me, he saves and calls and changes. And young people, may I point out something that maybe you've not thought of? Probably most of these apostles were young men. John surely was an adolescent. Now you take that and run with it. And then we have the solid truth of the sovereignty of God. Judas is an example. The cross is an even greater example. For we read in Acts chapter 4, we could see this in another place as well, but in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, in the midst of this prayerful boldness, the early church prayed, for surely in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. He's saying they are responsible for their sin. But listen to this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And when we get a down within our hearts a commitment to this truth of the sovereignty of God over all things, then it puts steel in your backbone and helps you to live life no matter what comes, to the glory of God. All of these things I think we take with us by simply thinking through Luke six twelve through 16. William Hendrickson said, What points up the greatness of Jesus is that he took such men as these and welded them into an amazing influential community that would prove to be not only a worthy link with Israel's past, but also a solid foundation for the church's future. We cannot fail to be impressed with the majesty of the Savior whose drawing power, incomparable wisdom, and matchless love were so astounding that he was able to gather around himself and to unite into one family men of entirely different, at times even opposite, backgrounds and temperaments. Jesus drew them to himself with cords of his tender, never-failing compassion. He loved them to the uttermost. And I think probably it's best that we conclude our time looking at these apostles and their names by turning together to 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. As the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians has been speaking of the word of the cross that is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are saved, it is the power of God. He concludes by contemplating those whom God ordinarily calls, calls effectually out of darkness and sin to himself. And in 1 Corinthians 1.26, he says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now this is the apostolic band. In the eyes of the world, nothing special. Foolish, weak, low, despised. In the Roman world, they would have been considered not. But I ask you, If we know ourselves, isn't that me? Isn't that the church? Sometimes God calls someone from a humanly high position. Most of the time, he calls those who are regarded by the world as nothing. But these nobodies, I mean in worldly terms, in the eyes of the world, these nobodies, they're no nobodies to God. But these nobodies in the eyes of the world turned the world upside down. Because it wasn't about them. It was about Jesus and the message of his resurrection from the dead. And that apostolic message given to that motley group that God would grow in grace is the same message that he has given to this motley group. Saved by grace. To take to the world around us. And God's people said, Amen.